see me up here? I can assure you I'm just as surprised as you. Uh, Will uh, sent me a message Friday night and had said Vic was ill. Uh, And I haven't heard any more on him. So if anyone knows anything, let us know. I was kind of curious, but he's not feeling well and they needed a substitute. And so here I am. Um, I haven't for I've met some of you, uh, but not all of you. Uh, my name is Matt Weiss. Uh, my wife is Sarah there in the black. Uh, we have two girls, Maddie and Kate. They're twins. They're eight years old. You can hear them in there, classroom B there with, with Shelby. Um, we've been coming here for a number of months, I think since May. Um, and we love this church. Uh, it, it's wonderful. The, the people are, are warm. Uh, Pastor Daniel is, is, is phenomenal. The elders, you really, this is, this is a great church, and we're grateful <clears throat> to be here. And so, and so, having said that, I'm just I'm honored to be able to teach this morning for Vic. Uh, remember Vic in your prayers again. Like I said, I'm not exactly sure what is going on, but um, he's not feeling well. So uh, just remember him. And it's a good time to also just remember those who teach. Pastor Daniel, the elders, you know, Will filled in last week, last minute, literally last minute. And so just remember them. You know, they, they put in a lot of work. They labor in the word. And a lot of times it can be a, a thankless job. And they don't do it for the applause of men, of course. But we should still honor them. And so we just remember Pastor Daniel, the elders, and Vic uh, as they continue to teach week in and week out, as I know you, you probably do. Um, but having said that, when he will ask me uh, to teach, my mind immediately goes, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to teach? What, you know, you could go anywhere. I'm not in anywhere. I, I, this is a sort of a one-time thing right now. So I didn't want to step on Vic's toes uh, by going to James. Um, I, I kind of t- thought about maybe doing justification in Paul's letters because he did justification uh, with James last week. Um, but I've been in a recent study in Mark. So I thought we would just go there today. So if you want to open your Bibles to uh, Mark, chapter 6, verse 7 through 30. So Mark's gospel is a little unique. It's one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Mark has a very unique way of writing in the sense that he puts a lot of detail into short passages. He, there's a lot of, this probably has to do with Peter a little bit, a, a companion of, of Mark, who probably gave him a lot of good detail with some of these stories. Um, but he has a very interesting way of communicating. Uh, he, would, he likes to use the intercalation. It's a term where you, ins, you have a narrative. You start with a narrative then you insert another narrative in between. It's sort of, it's an A-B-A structure. And it's done intentionally. Um, Well-learned theologians just call it a sandwich. I'm good with that. I'm a sandwich guy, not not an intercalation guy. So I'm going to call it, it's a sandwich, a sandwich method of 
writing. And he does that in this passage that we're going to look at today. In Mark's gospel, there's around six or seven of these sandwich-style devices that he uses. Um, Matthew and Luke have a few of these as well, but Mark has more than than the rest of them. Uh, so the theme today is discipleship, but the title of the, of the lesson is The Death of John the Baptist. And so th- this is why I want to start in verse 7 and read through verse 30, um, even though there's a heading break after verse 29. Most of your Bibles should have a heading break there. I want to include verse 30 because it's, it's relevant to the text, because it fits that sandwich. So our focus this morning isn't going to be so much on verses 7 through 13 and verse 30, but it needs to be mentioned. So the focus today, again, is on the death of John the Baptist and its significance. And the middle, so the, the John, John the Baptist, his, his death is the middle part of that sandwich, which generally drives the meaning of, of, the, of the whole sandwich itself. So I'll read Mark chapter 6, 7 through 30. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place." And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John has said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter her, her, and when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced, and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, "Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you." He also swore to her, "Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom." So she went out and said to her mother, "What shall I ask?" And she said, "The head of John the Baptist." Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. 
brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for each one of us that are here today. We thank you for your grace that sustained us this week. Thank you for your word. We ask that by your spirit you will open our ears and open our hearts and minds that we might receive it and receive it with joy. Be with Vic as he is ill, that he might overcome it soon. We thank you for your sovereign care over each and every one of us. Be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so back in chapter 1, we see John the Baptist introduced right away. Uh, This Mark introduces, uh, doesn't have any genealogies. He doesn't have any record of of Jesus' birth. It starts right at his ministry. And so John the Baptist is introduced right away. And you get a few verses down, and all it says is that John is arrested. That's it. There's no other details at that point. So John is arrested, and now we get, you know, almost halfway through this book, and Mark stops and gives detail as to why he was arrested and what happened after that. You know, this, is, this section in Mark isn't, is, is a spot where Jesus isn't explicitly talked about directly, the only part. But as we all know, all scripture ultimately points to him. And so it is about him. So Mark is, telling, is talking about the 12 in verses 7 through 13. He's talking about the 12. He sends them out um, on a mission to preach uh, repentance in the kingdom of God. And then he just comes to a hasty stop. He, he stops abruptly and turns to John the Baptist and Herod. It seems to be just kind of out of nowhere. And if you know anything about Herod, the whole Herod dynasty was nasty. Their whole lineage was corrupt. It was wicked. And you probably recall Herod the Great, who was the one who tried to kill Jesus at his birth. If you go back to his birth record, uh, they had to flee to Egypt because Herod was, was uh, sought to kill all the male children to and under. And so that was Herod the Great. This is this Herod's father. And then we have this Herod that's in our text now who tried to, or he not tried to, he did murder John the Baptist. And then this Herod, Herod Antipas, his son, Herod Agrippa, was the one who killed James the Apostle in Acts chapter 12. And then you see Paul later on at the end of Acts stand before Herod Agrippa II. So you have a whole line of wickedness. So whenever you see Herod's name, you know something bad's coming. And it starts off of verse 14. Now King Herod, here we go, he heard of him. So Jesus, up until this point in Mark, Jesus' his fame has spread all throughout the region. His works, his words are spreading like wildfire. Every, people are traveling miles and miles to hear him. Some had good motivations, some had bad motivations. But nonetheless, his fame spread. But Herod heard of him, as many did, but also as many did, they wondered about the identity of this man. Who was he? 
You'll, you'll notice in previous chapters in Mark, the question keeps coming up. Who is this? Who then is this that can forgive sins? Who is this that the sea obeys his commands? Who is this? And there is no shortage of confusion. He said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. You remember, you might recall in chapter 8, where that famous confession of Peter, Jesus first asked his disciples, who is it that they say that I am? And he said the exact same response that, that they're given here. They told Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Herod was confused. He was no exception to this. But he did insist, he did insist that it was John. Whom I beheaded, he says. He's been raised from the dead. You know, at, at first, you might think it's a little easy to understand the confusion. Jesus and John, six months apart, earthly cousins. Six months apart, they both had followers. They both preached a message of repentance. Okay, you might see a little bit of confusion there. But what's most likely going on here is just a, is not just a mere misunderstanding on Herod's part, but it has a little more to do with a guilty conscience. John, whom I beheaded, it says. You ever get paranoid when you're, when you're guilty about something? All of a sudden, you just get a little more jumpy. Or I, get, I go back to my childhood when I would get in trouble and I see my parents talking. Oh, they're talking about me. Guarantee you that. They may not have been, but I'm paranoid about it because I know I've been in trouble. That could be the case here. He murdered John. He goes, John, whom I beheaded. He murdered John and he thinks he's coming, he's came back from the dead for retribution. Now Mark takes us through these events in verses 17 through 20 and following and gives an overview of what happened here. So we have a lot of details about what happened, starting in verse 17. So all we have so far is that John got arrested. Uh, so, so now we get, the, get some more details. Herod married his brother's wife. Contrary to God's law, uh, specifically in Leviticus 18, uh, she was called Herodias uh, and was the niece of Herod. So this was an immoral relationship. She was a niece. She was in the family already. And so there's all kinds of violations. I mean, just one after, one here, one there, one there. Um, and John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness. And John made it known that he violated the moral law of God. So John rebuked him for his unbiblical marriage. And this is where the clash happened. Uh, imagine the conviction and courage of, on John's part. We can read over this very easily and just kind of dismiss him. And, but overlook the courage. It's easy to say something to an everyday citizen who has no real power over you. But to do this to Herod, it's remarkable courage. He was living in sin, but this was John's mission. John wasn't cut out to live very long. Let's put it that way. He wasn't. 
To preach sin and repentance and to prepare the way for Christ. That was his mission. There, this is the bad news, but in order to get to the good news, you've got to talk about the bad news. The bad news is what many people don't want to hear. If John the Baptist lived in our day, he would be hated. And this is where we miss it, I'm afraid, that many Christian leaders and lay people in our Western churches might say that John was divisive, that he was hateful, that he lacked grace. How dare you say that? Are you perfect? Yet Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. Steve Lawson famously said, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. You know, it, now, there's no virtue in being a jerk. There's no virtue in being hateful. And we shouldn't be looking for trouble. But what Lawson meant by that quote was, we can't also water down the message. You can't remove sin and repentance. Because the moment you do that, you're going to be, all of a sudden become real popular. That's what he's saying by that. You can't remove that from our vocabulary. So it says, He had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. So we see at this point, we're going to see Herodias kind of become front and center in the narrative. She's the one that's bloodthirsty, even more so than Herod. It says she held it against him and wanted to kill him. She was enraged. She held a grudge. Grudges, if not held in check, if not repented of, can lead to all sorts of evil. But Herod was in her way. You see, Herod was in her way here. Herod was scared to do it in verse 20. He feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. He protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod is confused. Herod could recognize his sinfulness. He could recognize John's holiness. Not that John's perfect, but he, he exposed Herod. Light exposes the dirt. It shines the light on the dirt. And he knew the baptizer was a righteous man. And because of that, he didn't want to do permanent harm to him. Was it superstition, perhaps? Again, this could have been a fear of retribution because of what he did or what he uh, thought of was what he did to John. It could have been a fear of an uprising. John had a great following, many followers. Did he want that kind of attention? But to appease Herodias just a little bit, put him in jail. Didn't want to kill him because of fear, but put him in jail. But he heard him gladly. He was perplexed by John's message. It's very interesting. He was very confused. But he was almost a little bit interested. He, didn't, he, you know, he wanted to kill him, but not really. Did he want to? I don't know what to do here. I think we kind of see this issue today. How many people have an attitude toward Jesus like they did, like Herod had toward John? They might respect him a little bit. They recognize his authoritative teaching. Uh, they know he was a holy man. Uh, they, they, they think he did many wonderful things, um, but they don't fully commit. I think we see that a lot. They have respect for Jesus. Respect. 
But when conviction comes, you have a choice. You can either repent or you can double down. Those are really the only two options. And for Herod, his conscience is definitely conflicted, but his unlawful wife is getting in the way here. Look at the irony in this narrative. The king was in fear of the prisoner, not the prisoner in fear of the king. I'll stop just right there at that point. Does anybody have any comments or anything? Anything they want to add? If not, that's okay. I just wanted to open it up for just a minute. While I take a drink of water. If you look at verse 21 through 29, we get the gory details. So it was Herod's birthday, and in the Roman world, a lot of public figures, sometimes they, were, they would be made into holidays. So it was a big deal. Uh, they, he, he gave a feast, it says he gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. So all the top brass was there. And that's significant. And these men don't actually say a word in this narrative, but their silence actually speaks to their influence and power. Sometimes the scariest people are the ones who don't say anything at all. And you got to keep in mind, though, see, you got, so Herod's got all these people here. He's got, he's got all these noble people and, and influential people here, and then Herodias. And she's the mastermind behind all of this. And we can gather at the beginning of verse 21 when it says, Then an opportune day came. She was looking for an opportunity. She was just waiting. She was being patient. But she was, when an opportunity came, she was going to take advantage of this. She was going to look, look for a way to finish John. She held a grudge. But Herod, so far, has kept him safe. So she's like, okay, I'm going to take a different avenue here. I'm just going to wait. There will be some opportunity come. Sin is crouching at the door. And sometimes all you need is an opportunity. We have desires that are unholy. And sometimes all you need is an opportunity. Sometimes we don't get those opportunities. And by God's grace, it doesn't get worse. But Herodias had this desire, and she needed an opportunity. It's a word of warning to all of us to avoid certain situations, to not give rise or give occasion to opportunities. But we see Herodias here. Here's her, her, her plan, to send her daughter in to dance for them. You know, it's possible that Herodias knew that uh, she might get a, a reward for this, so she sent her in. She knows a bunch of guys are out there, what to do. She danced for Herod in the party, it says, and it pleased him. It pleased him. This dance was not ballet. And so Herod's response to this, he makes a drunken vow, pretty much. We see time and time again in Scripture people making vows when they, when they just should not be making vows. Getting caught up in the moment. Uh, saying something they should have, or you didn't even have to. Well, I'm, I've made vows I shouldn't have. 
Let your yes be yes and your no be no. One of the more famous ones, or infamous ones, I should say, is Jephthah. And judges who made a a vow, a careless vow, and, and we believe ended up sacrificing his own daughter because of the vow. So, Herod says, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Probably an idiom, not to be taken literally. Uh, but nonetheless, he's flexing his muscles, showing off in front of his guests that I have the authority and power to give you anything. What do you want? And I'll give it to you. Pride probably lies behind this vow. He's an independent authority. I can give you half my kingdom. He has enough to give away half of a kingdom. Verse 24, she went, in, she went to her mother to discuss what to ask for. She went to her mother. So essentially, Herodias is the one who's making this decision. Who is getting this wish granted. She, the, uh, Herodias' daughter d- doesn't even seem to care about it all that much. Kind of seems like she's in on it too, in a lot of ways. Especially when you, when uh, we get to it in a minute, she didn't even rebuttal anything. She just went and did it. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I, you, could, you can almost just picture the grin on Herodias' face when she came in and said, hey, what do you want? Herod said, I can have anything. What should I ask for? You can just see that evil grin come across and say, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And yeah, like I just said, her daughter wasn't all that concerned about any suspicious activity. It says she immediately she came in with haste and asked Herod for John's head on a platter. Without delay, you want it, you got it, I'll be right back. Herod sought to please his guests over and above God. And this, this is really the heart of the issue for Herod. His fear of man. He feared these powerful people over the omnipotent God. And, you know, it says that the king was exceedingly sorry... Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. This is easy to do, to fear man. It's easy to do. It says he was exceedingly sorry. I don't believe he had a super strong desire to kill John. I think there was a desire. But you can have more than one desire, just lesser and greater. You can have a lesser desire and a greater desire. He had a lesser desire to kill John, but he had a greater desire to please man and to keep his reputation and authority in check. So Herod was sorry, much like Judas, who was sorry. But as Paul says in Corinthians, there's a worldly sorrow that does not produce repentance. And that's, this, was, this was the case with Herod, as it was with Judas. It was not a godly regret. And so they, 
Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded that his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. Herod gave the orders. John was dead in an instant. As we were talking about earlier, he probably, hopefully the sword was sharp. His head was brought on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Why the head on the platter? Was, it a, was that a cultural thing? The barbarism? They were barbaric. She and the rest were barbaric. She wanted undeniable proof that John was dead. Bring me his head, and I'll be good. Proverbs 8.36 says, God, God says, All who hate me love death. And a hatred of God loves death. We were reminded of that in our day, especially in the abortion industry. Mankind in its natural state hates God. And the natural consequences is a love of death. And so they naturally hate anyone who even represents God. In word or deed, you're naturally hated. If they hate, Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. And you know, you see, you see some similarities here with Herodias and Jezebel. There's a strong connection there. Go back to 1 Kings and you see Jezebel who had a hatred for Elijah and wanted him dead. Herodias is like Jezebel. And John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And so you see the same thing playing out in the New Testament. The same thing. For different reasons, but the same thing is happening. And they use their weak husbands to carry out the murder. As in, with Elijah wasn't murdered, but eventually Jezebel had King Ahab have Naboth murdered. But this, this, this story of John the Baptist, it's a, it's a ghastly story. I'd like to point out just a few things about this narrative itself before we get to the broader point. I'm going to make my way back to the sandwich thing. Um, number one, the conscience is a real thing, and if ignored, it will become seared. We know grace isn't automatic, and we should not presume anything that tomorrow I will do this or that. You need to, when your conscience is pricked, you need to obey that conscience. Herod did not. Number two, people can be close to salvation and miss it. Herod was face to face with one of the greatest of God's prophets in the time of Christ, and he missed it. That's a sobering thought. Number three, a faithful follower of Christ will speak of sin and righteousness even when it's unpopular. And perhaps this might be the biggest takeaway for us. And this is a, the fear of man issue. John was a good example of not fearing man. He had courage. He had a fear of God. And finally, we, and number four, we see that faithful followers of Christ do not have their reward on this earth. John followed Christ, and he lost his head at the age of 30. I didn't forget about verse 29. Those are just some takeaways from that particular passage. In verse 29, 
we see John's disciples give him a proper burial, even without a head. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. You know, Mark in particular spent so much more time on John's death than his actual ministry. So perhaps the bigger takeaway is this, and this is where and why we need to get back to the sandwich technique from Mark I talked about at the beginning. Because in verse 30, we see Mark pick back up telling us about the mission of the twelve. So if you look at verse 30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. This is this is this very well could be verse 14. It's picking back up from the mission of the twelve. So sandwiched in between the mission of the twelve, you got the mission of the twelve, the mission of the twelve, and in between is John's martyrdom. Just a coincidence? No, because that's Mark is trying to help us understand something. What we see here from John's death is Mark getting his readers to see the relationship between following Christ and suffering. The twelve will experience this too. The same hostility that was shown towards John the Baptist is going to be shown to the twelve. I mentioned James, who was martyred. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified upside down. And tradition tells us most of the apostles were martyred. Paul was later, we believe, martyred. And throughout church history, many, countless Christians have suffered for righteousness' sake. Regarding this Mark and Sandwich, James Edwards says the following, quote, Mark follows the martyrdom of the baptizer with a one-sentence summary in verse 30 of the mission of the twelve. What does Mark intend by bracketing the martyrdom of the baptizer by the mission of the twelve? The sandwich structure draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death, into an inseparable relationship. Whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow him. And even if we don't, aren't martyrs, good chance we're not. There's still opposition. John's death was a big deal to Mark because it served as a preview in another sense of Jesus' death. It foreshadowed his, his execution and burial, quite honestly. James Brooks pointed this out. He says, quote, John, like Jesus, was executed by a secular ruler. Herod, like Pilate, did not want to execute his prisoner, but caved into pressure from others. Herodias, like the chief priests, schemed to bring about the execution. John's disciples, like Joseph of Arimathea, tenderly buried the body of their leader. It's amazing. And when you read that and put those things together, it strengthens your faith. John's message is true. He is truly the forerunner of Christ in both his his ministry and even in his death. And we follow in those footsteps as well. 
John said that Jesus is mightier than I. So all of us who seek to follow Christ must understand this opposition. That it's going to come in some form or fashion. You know, I know, we, we live in the, in the West, and I read an article this week from Voice of the Martyrs. If you guys don't know anything about Voice of the Martyrs, I'm sure you do. I've seen some things out there. Read some stuff. It's, it's heartbreaking. This week, some Christians in Pakistan, you know, they, don't, they just don't get physically beat up or anything. That's just the beginning. They have houses burned down, families torn apart, lives just completely turned upside down in the Middle East. We don't suffer like that. We should pray for them. And remember that even for ourselves, we're not exempt from it someday. Who knows? I don't know what the Lord has in store. But we need to at least in some measure, some measure, feel opposition from the world. Not intentionally, not that we're asking for it, but it's natural. If you hold to the teachings of Christ, there could be a little discomfort. The gospel is good news, but, the, but at the same time is offensive. In Peter's first letter to his recipients, uh, who were under severe persecution, he says this, and I'll kind of close with this. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So... That's all I have. Does anyone have any comments or anything to add to that that they'd like to share? <clears throat> There's many things you could go with that. But this sandwich technique is very good to, to draw conclusions that the mission of the Twelve involves suffering. And for anyone who, by implication, would follow Christ. Yeah. Right. And things to Christians can happen in the twenty or not. Right. Right. You're right. I mean you can look at just how 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 quickly our culture has turned, you know, you know, a couple of generations ago, you know, a little different. But it's really different now. It changes like that in one's lifetime for sure. But you're right. In an individual's life it can change in the twinkling of an eye. You just never know. Josh. Yeah, amen. You just, you pray. And that's why we need to be continually in prayer that God will give us grace in that hour. That's a great point. All right, I squeezed in 40 minutes. I had the under. All right, I'll pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you sent your only son 
to live and die in our place. And for the Spirit and His convicting work in our hearts. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. Give us grace to continue to endure whatever opposition we might face, that we would be bold, that we would have courage and stand in the truth. We thank you for each other. Bless the upcoming service, Pastor Daniel, uh, in this service. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.